Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Seventeen, Vadim and Vanya. The New York Times screamed the headlines. Titanic sinks four hours after hitting iceberg. Eight hundred and sixty-six rescued by Carpathia. Probably one thousand two hundred and fifty perish. Ismay safe. Mrs. Astor maybe. Noted names missing. It was the morning of April fifteenth, nineteen twelve. Doctor Gustav read the article with grim shock. No one said a word. Even Sambaba tried to make himself smaller as he crept around the room, serving coffee and breakfast. Up on the roof of the house, Ian stared down through the surging crowds through the handheld video camera zoom. He kept the twilight blue glow of the LCD screen tucked beneath his coat, just in case some past person busybody was watching from a window. Shock gripped the entire city today. Ian could see a new twitter of panic in every face that passed, a new shadow gibbering in the collective peripheral vision. The sinking was more than just a mere maritime disaster. It was a great psychic blow, the shattering of a worldview. The impossible had happened. Madness was uncaged. The boogeyman really might be hiding in the closet after all. The disaster was already old news to Ian, of course. With all his watching of the History Channel, He'd even known the exact date it was coming, but he'd had an irrational fear that perhaps his own and Max's presence in the past might have somehow disrupted the timeline, shattered some fracture point of events, even though he'd known that this was supposedly impossible. So, in a strange way, Ian was relieved. The event had ticked off on schedule, exactly as history had recorded. The people of 1912, Ian thought. Watching them glide across his glowing screen like electronic specters, even after so many months in this time, it still gave him a shiver just to think of that fact. And these people were so strikingly different from people of the present. Why, if you dressed modern people in these very same clothes, Ian knew he'd now be able to spot them instantly as fakes. So, what was it exactly that made these people so different? The always serious expressions on their faces. The crisp way in which they moved, the gaunt and hollow look in their eyes, Ian couldn't tell. It was something beyond actions and physicality, something burned into their very being. It was as though they were a different species of human altogether. Madame Romani stood suddenly beside him, smiling, pulling a shawl around her. "You are up here again, Ian." Ian nodded. She looked down into his coat and saw the blue glare of his LCD video screen peeping from underneath his coat and laughed softly. Ah, you are making another cinematograph. Ian nodded sheepishly, caught in the act. Uh, yes. What is it you are trying to see? She asked. Ian chewed the frosty morning air, looking for the right words. It's it's hard to explain. This whole time period is very different from ours. And by that I mean the people themselves are different. Not just the buildings and the clothes and the things, but them, all of them down there. Well, I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out what it is. 
Romani laughed and gave Ian a strange look. That is what I think about you and Max sometimes. Ian nodded. Yeah, I'll bet we seem pretty weird to you in the same way. Romani's eyes twinkled and then her eyes bored down into him. You are a brat. There is a a shortness to you both. Lack of patience or (laughs) short attention span, Ian finished. Romani laughed. We all have ADD, you know, attention deficit disorder. Yes, Romani said with a quizzical look, processing this latest example of Ian in Max's strange future slang. It is disquieting sometimes, I will admit. Your eyes are always darting around, and you are always fidgeting. But you are also marvelous, brilliant in ways we are not. There are things that you would instantly see through that we would not. Oh, it sounds like we are pretty complimentary, Ian said. We sort of balance each other out. Romani nodded. Yes, I think that sometimes. But other times I think there is danger in rashness. Our enemies are very clever and patient, with designs spanning lifetimes. We're on the same side, madame, Ian said. Romani nodded again, warmly. I know. Of that I have no doubt. She put her hand on Ian's and looked like she was going to say something else, but then only whispered, Well, come down to breakfast, when you are finished. After breakfast, Romani dispatched Feliero with a curt low whisper on an errand. Michelle, Romani, and Sambava cleaned the plates, and Gustav lit his pipe, continued to read the morning news about the Titanic with a furrowed brow. Meanwhile, Ian sat in the corner and studied the video he had shot from the roof. Something about it was bothering him. Max studied Ian, getting somewhat annoyed as Ian kept rewinding and playing the same section of tape over and over again. Abruptly, Ian jumped up and went into his room. He returned, clutching a handful of digital video cassettes. Whispering intensely to himself, he popped the current tape out and jammed a new one in. He fast-forwarded for several minutes and then cursed. What? Max finally asked, unable to stand the suspense. But Ian just held up a finger. He wasn't finished yet. He wasn't sure of what he'd found. There was another videotape, another few minutes of Ian's fingers madly working the fast-forward scan. Then he seemed to have another hit of whatever it was. Bloody hell. What? Max almost screamed. Ian looked up. Even Gustav was looking a little jumpy now. There's a couple of kids hanging around outside the house. Max cocked his head. So? The same two. They've been hanging around for days now. Max looked at Gustav. Neither one of them was tracking this. Look, Ian explained. I've been taping from that roof now for the last two weeks. And in the alley across the street, there are two kids. The same two in every tape I've looked at. They're just, I don't know, staring at the front door. They can't see the front door, Max replied. Gustav visibly stiffened and put down his paper. I know, Ian answered. But it's like, it's like they're trying to see it. Like, they know it should be there, but it's not. And they're like waiting for it to appear. Max got up. Show me. Ian flipped the LCD screen around and hit play. Gustav hunched wordlessly behind Max. And together they watched as the video panned down the street slowly. After a few seconds, Ian hit pause. There, Ian said. Sure enough, there were two dirty street urchins, a boy and a girl of about ten. They huddled together and stared mutely right at the front door of the house. Both squinted like they were reading something far away. 
what we're seeing on this kinetoscope, Gustav said, apparently referring to Ian's camera. When was it made? This one is from a week ago, Ian replied, but I'll show you the one from this morning. It's better. Ian loaded a new tape and hit play. This time, Ian's shots lasted longer. After zooming in on a clump of men with handlebar mustaches, Ian hovered momentarily on the round, pale, cherubic faces of the two urchins in the alley. They both seemed to squint when they winked. Again, their eyes were expectantly fixed on the front door of the house. Now, what's this? Ian announced. The boy raised his hand to his cap to straighten it, and Ian paused the tape, freezing the frame. Max gasped. The sunbolt. The tattoo of Nuberian slavery, a black sun with lightning bolts ringing its circumference, was burned into his little hand. Seen that somewhere before, haven't we? Ian whispered. Gustav breathed the curse in Greek. For a whole week these two have been on our very doorstep and we haven't noticed. What do we do? Ian asked. Invite them in for hot cocoa? Romani heard the ruckus and entered the room. What is it? she asked. Gustav explained quickly. Michelle entered halfway through the conversation. Ian showed them both the video. Michelle looked utterly startled when she saw the sunbolt. Do you... Is it even possible these children escaped? From Madworth? Yes, it looks that way, Max answered. Merd, Michelle said, shivering. Those poor children, what do you think they want? Food, warmth, Gustav said. What else? It could be a trap, Sambava warned, following Michelle. The Nuberians could have shivering tattooed children on every street corner, waiting to see which one we take in. A way to find our nest. Then we shall take them all in, so they do not know which of the lures worked. Romani spat, quaking. Think, Europa, Gustav said softly. We must be careful here. I feel for these children, too. But whatever we do must be considered. Many more children are at stake ultimately, than just these two. Madame Romani sat and considered, her jaw quivering with rage. Something about the situation hit home, angered her to her core. Perhaps someone should go talk to them, Sambava suggested minutes later. Maybe take them in, but not into the house itself. Lead them away to another place, a neutral place, one that it wouldn't matter if the Nuberians knew about. Romani nodded slowly. Gustav had poured her tea, which seemed to calm her. That would be prudent. Gustav leaned in close to her. I know we can't just leave them out there. No, Romani breathed. Not when they are scarred with that foul mark on their hands. Any who bear such a mark of oppression are our friends. We are bound to help them. Gustav nodded. Of course. But not you, Max said to Sambaba. Pardon me, Sambaba blinked. You're too big and scary, Ian said. We don't want you to be the first thing they see. I mean, no offense. I know you don't mean to be, but you're frightened to death. Send Michelle. Me, Michelle said, jumping in alarm. Yeah, Max answered. Definitely you. Well, I... Michelle glanced around nervously. Why is she acting all weird, Max thought. Romani smiled. Yes, of course. Michelle? Michelle looked at all the expected eyes in the room and seemed to change her mind. Oui, oui, of course. I will go to them, Michelle replied. 
Vadim and Vanya huddled on the street corner in the wispy snow, shivering. Their money had almost run out. Their stomachs cramped with hunger. But there, just across the street, lay salvation. At least, that was what the strange boy had told them. Or rather, the addresses of the brownstones on either side. He had told them that there would be one in between that they could not see. He and his sister would be noticed. They would be helped. They just had to stand here long enough. Vadim could see nothing but a blank wall. But several times now, people had suddenly come out of the wall, like it was a ghost wall or something. And people had also walked into it like it was made of fog. A mean-looking man with a black pointy beard and a large Asian man, mostly. But Vadim was not surprised by this. Nothing surprised him, not anymore. Not after what he'd been through. Yet Vadim and Vanya had already stood here for a week, and still no one had come for them. Maybe the boy had lied, or not known what he was talking about. It was cold outside. They could handle the cold, of course. They'd been through worse. What was really worrying Vadim was that his little sister Vanya was starting to get sick. Vadim had seen sick people, what they looked like, how they coughed up blood, how their skin looked sallow and yellow. Vanya was not there yet, but he knew another few chilly, fever-filled nights of sleeping in the snow, and she would be. And it was then, at their darkest hour, that an angel appeared. She was blonde, with a great mane of curly hair around a tanned and dimpled face, wearing a long brown wool coat and warming her hands in a fur muff. One minute no one had been there, and then she had simply appeared. She was looking at them, directly at them, smiling. She walked across the street. Vadim's heart leapt in his chest. He almost did not dare to hope. She was still looking at them. Vanya squeezed his hand, the one with the black circle and the lightning bolts on it. That mark had hurt more than anything in his life when they had put it on him. He prayed this angel would be more kind to him and his sister. Hello, the angel said with a great toothy smile. I know you've been waiting. I'm sorry it's taken us this long, but I'm here to help. Come with me. We'll get you some warm food and a hot fire. Vanya smiled for the first time in a week, and Vadim thought he might cry with joy. Sambhava had arranged for a room at a nearby bed and breakfast called the Sleepy Hollow. It was just a few doors up the street from the house. Michelle led Vadim and Vanya, one dangling at the end of each hand, up to the front door. Romani, Gustav, Sambhava, Ian, and Max watched out the window of Gustav's front bedroom. Now, Romani said, we will see if anyone is watching them. So, Max said, you're turning their trap around. Now you're the observer, and they are the observed. Romani nodded coyly. Yes. Uh, will Michelle, Max started to ask, Mademoiselle Laveau will be fine, Romani answered curtly. And now, so are those two precious children. I will have a look around, Sambaba said, dressing in a coat and hat. I will see if there are any more of these children loitering about, more hooks for us to catch our mouths upon. And if you find any, Gustav asked, I will come back, of course, and we will decide together what to do. Later, in the room at the Sleepy Hollow, Vadim and Vanya huddled under a blanket in front of the radiator. Their red, cherubic faces gazed intently at the clanking metal as if it were the source of all relief. 
Michelle had given them both heaping bowls of oatmeal mixed with brown sugar and cinnamon. They'd quickly eaten their fill, and had seemingly shifted their attention towards storing warmth, as if they feared they would soon be tossed back outside into the cold once again. There was a soft knock at the door. Madame Romani, Dr. Gustav, Max, and Ian slowly entered the room. Romani stared at the two children, as if her heart were breaking. Hello, she said softly to them. My name is Europa. The children looked up at her with blank eyes, trying to figure out whether this new person, this woman, was a friend or not. Don't worry, Romani continued, sensing their fear. You are safe with us. We're going to take care of you. You will be warm and well-fed, I promise. The boy suddenly stood and walked to Romani. She looked down at him, surprised by his impromptu boldness. He stood in front of her for a long second, and then suddenly latched tightly onto her legs and would not let go. Gustav was caught off guard by the quick movement, and he had feared the worst. Had this been a trap after all? Was this boy sticking a poison needle into Romani's leg even now? But Romani stroked the boy's hair and shooed Gustav away, motioning that everything was all right. Tears fell down her cheeks. What is your name? Romani asked him. I am Vadim, he spoke with a Russian accent. This is my sister, Vanya. Vadim and Vanya, Romani repeated. Very nice to meet you both. This is Max, Ian, and Carlos, and you've already met Michelle. Yes, Vadim replied, smiling at Michelle. The angel, we know. Romani smiled at that. Oh, so she is an angel, is she? Mm-hmm, Vanya suddenly said. We saw her appear at the Finaire, and then she saved us. Michelle looked in alarm at Romani, but the gypsy woman was not angry in the slightest. Romani sat down on the bed opposite the children. She motioned for Max and Ian to be seated as well. Gustav slinked off to a chair in the shadows and brought out a pad of paper and a pencil. Vadim and Vanya, Romani began. As I have told you, we are your friends. We are going to look after you now and keep you safe. Do you understand? The two children nodded. Very good. Romani took a breath and then continued. We know that you come from somewhere else. A bad place, I imagine. Vadim started in fear and moved closer to his sister. You are safe from that place here, Romani continued. I promise. You will never have to go back. But, well, I will be very honest with you. I will ask you to be grown up a little bit right now. There are things we need to know about this bad place. We know there are other children there, and we want to help them as well. We want to make this place go away forever. But to do that, we will have to ask you some questions. Vadim and Vanya both nodded slowly. It won't be easy for you to remember. I know that. I would not ask you to talk about it unless it were absolutely necessary. But it is, I'm afraid. The things you tell us will help us greatly, more than you can imagine. Do you understand? They both nodded again. Good, Romani replied, smiling. You are both being very, very brave. Vadim stood up a little taller. He liked being called brave. Now, the first question. Where is this place that you come from? Vadim looked at his sister. They whispered quickly in Russian to each other. And then Vadim said, It is uh, under the ground. Very deep, we think. Under New York City? Gustav asked. 
Yes, Vadim replied. I think so. How did you get there? Were you taken from your parents? Yes, Vadim said. At night, while we slept. We went to bed, but when we woke up, we were somewhere else. We were in a nursery, they told us. Our parents deserted us. They didn't want us anymore. We weren't good enough. That was why we had to live with the other children who weren't good enough either. Wait, where's this nursery? Do you know? Ian asked. Vadim was lost, but Vanya thought for a long moment and then said, Bleak Street? I think they said Bleak Street. Ian nodded knowingly. Bleaker Street, probably. And that figures. It's the same nursery those two Pinkertons, Flibber and Slather, mentioned. Madworth owns it. After Madworth threatened some guy and his, and his kids disappeared, they searched it. Gustav nodded. But when they arrived, it was empty, seemingly abandoned. Yeah, what a surprise. Tell us, Vadim, Romani said. What was it like in this nursery? Vadim sighed. At 4.30 every morning they wake us up so that we can do work. Laundry, cleaning, dishes, scrubbing the cold cement floor. If only someone would come and open up the nursery, they would see an army of children, pale and scrawny, working. Why must we work? We must do penance, they say. We are dirty children, not good enough. And penance is the only way we will be worth something again. Penance and temperance and obedience. We must think of ourselves as little balls of dirt. But we were lonely in the nursery for a few weeks. One day, a tall man came. He gathered all the children up and went down into the earth. To the other place. Yes, that other place. How exactly did you get there? Ian asked. Vadim scrunched his face up and blinked. I, I don't know. Did this man make you look at a book? Max asked. Vadim shook his head. No, we walked. There's a room in the nursery. You go in it and it takes you to the other place. It is magic, I think. Max and Ian looked at each other. Not a book. Then what? Some new piece of Nuberian technology they had yet to encounter? Romani nodded intently. Tell us about the underground place. Varim sighed. He didn't want to talk about it. You are being very, very brave, Vadim, Romani encouraged. Braver than even some grown-ups, I think. Vadim brightened visibly, and then began speaking again in a torrent. It is a huge place, like a cave, but much bigger. There is a town there. There is a big clock in the center of the town, and lots of grown-ups who live there. But you don't stay there long. This place is only for them. Instead, they take you to a big building, far away from the town. It is like a jail, and there are hundreds of children there. It smells of dirty children. All of us are locked in cells. It is not much different from the nursery above ground. The man told us that we would live there now. It's very cold in there. All the time, very cold. Max filled with anger. So they kept the kids in prison cells half freezing to death, he thought. The floor is hard, Vanya continued, picking up her brother's thread. You have no pillow and no blanket. They feed you twice a day. Just a thin slice of bread and some coffee in a tin cup in the morning, and at dinner a water soup with old vegetables. You're always hungry, so hungry you can't sleep. You're not allowed to have friends. The other kids are always telling on you when you're talking or trying to make friends, and they get an extra slice of bread with their coffee when they tell on you, so you never want to break the rules. Vadim continued. Most of the time you're locked up, 
But sometimes, they make you come out and serve the grown-ups in the little town to clean their rooms or serve food, food you want to eat but you can't, or wash their clothes. Otherwise, you're locked up, and you talk to the other kids when you can, but the men come and yell at you to be quiet all the time. And then... Vadim finally started to lose his nerve. Yes, I know, it is hard, Vadim. Be brave, Romani whispered. Vadim burst into tears. <laughs> and then they come for you, several children at a time. You never know when, sometimes in the day, sometimes when you are sleeping. But it is always horrible. They make you walk outside, shivering, towards the big thing they have built. Then they make you go inside of it. Then they turn it on. It makes a great noise, like a train. But you can't see anything. It's all blackness in there. And they make you stay in there, crying and yelling, doing penance with the other kids for a long time. The machine, Max thought. It must be. They put the kids inside the machine? What happens to you inside this thing? Romani asked. Why is it so bad? Vanya suddenly spoke up. It makes you feel bad, all over. Very, very, very bad, like a nightmare. Vadim nodded in agreement, eyes dancing with fear. Yes, it does. Exactly like a bad dream. You feel bad and it gets worse and worse and worse. Very scary. Romani nodded and put her hand on Vadim's. I see, she said. Ian digested this new bit of information furiously, trying to see what the machine could possibly be for. It certainly did not sound at all like it was an atomic weapon anyway. There would be no reason to put kids inside of it. But were the kids all just scared simply because they were locked in a dark chamber? Or was there more to it? But already, he thought he could discount the theory that it was a transporter to Nibiru. That didn't seem to fit. Unless... unless they were testing it out on the kids? Vadim, Ian asked. Did uh, any of the kids actually die inside of the machine? I, I mean, this thing they put you inside of. Romani's eyes flicked a warning at Ian, but he needed to know. Yes, Vadim answered quietly. Sometimes. Were they... Ian began. I'm sorry, I, I have to ask this. Were they all in one piece when they died? Yes, Vadim replied. You're sure? Ian asked. Yes, I saw them. They were white with fear, but they were not hurt in any other way. Ian nodded. Thank you, Vadim. That was important to know. So, not a transporter, Ian thought. He'd suspected such a device would leave more of a mess if it failed to work. Are there guards? Max asked. Oh, yes, Vadim replied. Lots of them. They wear gold suits of armor. That figured. Centurions. So how did you escape? Romani asked. Vadim and Vanya had a quick exchange in Russian, and then Vadim said, We were lucky. One night the door to our cell was not locked right. I saw the guard turn the key, but the bolt did not slide. I could see light in the crack. The guard was not paying attention. So that night we snuck away. We go to the place where we first arrived, looking for the way back to the nursery, the magic way back. We look for the place in the town near the clock. We are very scared. If they catch us, they will kill us. But life is so bad now, we don't want to be alive anymore anyway. So we take the chance. And then, we find it somehow. The right place. And suddenly, we're back in the nursery. Nobody is there. We cannot believe our luck. 
We run outside, squeeze through the fence, and we're free. And then we come here. Yeah, about that, Ian said. How did you know how to find us? Ah, Vadim replied. That part was actually easy. Another dirty boy told us. Usually, this boy was mean to us. I did not think he liked us, but I must have been wrong. He told me the address several times and made me repeat it until I memorized it. This boy, what was his name? Max asked. I do not know, Vadim said. We were not allowed to have friends, so I did not think to ask. He was a grim-looking boy, though. Black hair and black eyes like rotten little peas. Tell us about the machine itself, Ian asked. I mean, what does it look like? It's huge, Vanya said, her eyes bulging. And gold, like a ship. So big it is amazing. I could not believe it when I saw it. Can you draw it? Max asked suddenly. Vadim nodded. I can draw very well, he said proudly. Max snatched Gustav's pad and paper away from him. Gustav snorted in protest and surprise, but Max ignored him and flipped to a new sheet and handed it to Vadim. The boy eagerly took the pad and pencil and began sketching, while his sister looked on, commenting in Russian. Romani rose and summoned them all but Michelle out into the hallway. So, she asked, what do you make of it? I don't know, Max answered. Why are they making kids get inside of it? They're testing it, Ian suggested. The kids are guinea pigs. But hundreds of them, Gustav replied. Why do they need so many? Yeah, that doesn't make sense, Max agreed. Couldn't they test whatever it is on like 10 or 20? And infants, Gustav added. Why infants? It seems needlessly cruel, even for them. Ian nodded. I don't know. Unless uh, the machine is doing something to them, changing them, transforming them somehow. Then why is it so big? Max answered. You heard them. It's huge. I don't know. It still seems like a weapon or a ship or something to me. You think we have another Jada situation on our hands? Ian asked. Max nodded. If I had to guess, I'd say absolutely yes. This thing is something to help them take control of the planet. And the place is crawling with centurions. It sounds real familiar from where I sit. Okay, Ian nodded, accepting this for a moment. Maybe they're trying to turn the kids into something, altering them genetically. But the size, Max said, shaking his head. It just doesn't seem like something... I don't know, medical, needs to be that friggin' huge. This thing is meant to have a big impact. I mean, it's big because it's supposed to do something big. Gustav nodded. And that's why they need so many children. So, so the kids are what? Ian groped. Fuel? Max nodded, snapping his fingers and pointing at him. That's sounding more like it. They're, they're draining the kids of something. Of what, though? Ian pondered. Youth? Gustav nodded slowly. Maybe. Youth is certainly a factor here. They're using only children. But wouldn't the kids come out of the machine, like, all old or something? Max asked. You know, if it was sucking years of life out of them? Ian nodded. Maybe. Although with Nuberian technology, we're way through the looking glass. I mean, this is exotic stuff. And don't forget, the Archons are assisting them, Gustav reminded them. It is a deeper technology than even Nuberians are normally capable of. They keep saying that they were afraid, Max pondered. Afraid, afraid, but why and of what? Well, yeah, Ian replied. You'd be too. I mean, think about it. You're a little kid. 
and there's a big scary machine and people are pushing you inside of it. No, Max answered, his intuition flowing now. It's something more fundamental. Gustav nodded slowly. Yes, but why? What do they gain? Don't look at me, Ian shook his head. I've never heard of anything Nuberian like this. I know I'm supposed to be the expert here, but this is nothing at all like a sky chamber. Max thought for another moment. Well, at least we have a clue now how to get to it. Ian nodded, smiling grimly. Bleecker Street, that bloody nursery. There's a way into the nest from there. Romani had been silently listening to this exchange, but now she spoke up. But we still do not know what the machine does. But we can attack, Max hissed back. Vadim and Vanya's faces were fresh in his mind, and he was itching for a fight. There's nothing holding us back now. We know where the front door is. We just have to go kick it in. Romani almost looked as if she finally agreed. The two children had affected her as well. Not just yet, she finally replied. I want to know exactly what the machine does before we go down there. But they're almost finished with it, Max protested. I told you what Michelle and I overheard Madworth say at the candy store. Four weeks. That's only a few days away. If we don't attack now, it might be too late. Max wanted to scream. What was it going to take for Romani to finally unleash them all? Isn't this why all of you came to New York in the first place? Romani looked pained and conflicted, but she merely shook her head. I know. Please, trust me this one last time. Just then, Michelle emerged from the room, bearing the pad. Vadim says he has drawn his very best. She turned the pad around. They all gazed intently at what the boy had scrawled on its surface. The lines were crooked and childlike in some ways, but they could still make out very clearly what Vadim was trying to show them. The machine, it seemed, was a series of circles, one inside the other. It was standing on end as if it were a massive wafer with a round ball in the exact middle, some kind of compartment or capsule. Inside this ball, Vadim had drawn several stick figures, crying. The entire contraption was set inside of a crater. There were men drawn around the outside of the crater, stick figures with top hats. They were very small, meant to show how tall a man was in comparison. Good boy, Vadim, Max thought, appreciating what the boy had tried to illustrate. Michelle volunteered to stay with Vadim and Vanya at the Sleepy Hollow for a few days, while the rest of them returned to the house. By the time they arrived, Max and Romani were in a full-blown argument over the wisdom of taking immediate action on the nest. You just sit here in this house, and you don't do anything, and that's why... Max didn't finish the sentence. Romani glared at him. Yes? You were saying... Never mind, Max replied. You were going to say that there is a reason why there is no trace of us in your future. Isn't that right? There, someone had finally said it out loud. Her eyes bored into Max mercilessly. Why are we nowhere to be found during the time of the pocket? Oh yes, I noticed that we were distinctly missing in your tail. And had we been alive, surely you would have seen some trace of us. This did not escape you either, did it? Gustav shifted uncomfortably. This analysis had not occurred to him, apparently. Even Faliero, who had by now returned, winced noticeably. No, it didn't, Max said finally. Look, I just don't understand this passive stance of yours. 
If we attack, I mean, sure, we might lose. That's true. But every day we don't, they grow stronger. They take more kids. And that machine gets closer to being finished. They're about to flip it on. Probably the reason we don't exist in your future is you actually talk us into this madness and get us all killed, Faliero muttered. Look, we're the only ones with any hope at all of succeeding, Max continued, ignoring him. There's literally nobody else. It's risky. I know that. But I'm for trying rather than sitting around any longer. I can't stand all this waiting. All this sitting around on our hands. Sneaking around on missions. Listening in on conversations. Taking tedious notes and studying the Niburians. Not anymore. Not now. Not after seeing these kids close up and personal. Face to face. Not after hearing that story. How can we just sit here? Max threw his hands up. When it was clear Romani wasn't going to speak further, he left the room. The next day, Max and Gustav were once again in their lessons in his study. They had been at this daily for months now, and as Gustav annoyingly pointed out again and again, Max had made very little progress. He was apparently a poor student of the dream time. Maybe he had no talent for it after all. Maybe Max found he was becoming annoyed. It was no fun being frustrated day in and day out. The lessons, which had once seemed so liberating, so exciting, were now merely a chore, something to be endured. Gustav locked the door to his study and sat in his customary position opposite Max. For a long time, he stared at Max. Finally, he said, You would really rush into that nest right now, wouldn't you? Just as you rushed back to 1912. Even though you have made no progress to speak of, you have no power even though you have no way to defend yourself. Max nodded. I would, yes. I know you think it's foolish, but to me, I'd rather try and maybe die than sit here twiddling my thumbs and let Madworth torture more kids. We have to take a shot at unplugging that machine, and we are running out of time. You're serious, Gustav asked, his words filled with a dangerous weight. Max sensed at once his answer mattered more than it might seem on the surface. But he did feel that way. If he'd given up during the pocket, Anki's plan would have never worked. And he had even less hope then than he did now. Gruffly, Max nodded. Yeah, I am. Well then, Gustav answered, I have a thought. I believe I have a way to accelerate your training. But it is risky. Risky how? Like the cryptonesiac I tried to break, it is that sort of risk. But unlike that attempt, I believe there is a real chance this one will work, and I have my reasons for believing this. So tell me, what are you proposing? Gustav shook his head. That is the catch, as you say. I can't tell you. What, is it like the hiccups? You have to surprise me in order for it to work? Gustav nodded slightly. It is something like that, yes. Not even a hint, then. Gustav shook his head. You must decide. Do you want to try this or not? Max suddenly was filled with cold dread. How serious was he about all this? It was gut check time, apparently. Can I think about it? Gustav shook his head. No. Have you cleared this with Romani? Gustav hesitated only a moment and shook his head again. Great. Romani doesn't know. Then it's definitely dangerous. 
Max breathed out and looked down at the floor in front of him. He felt like a coward. He wished he'd never come into this room today. But Vadim and Vanya floated into his mind. Those poor kids had endured more than anyone ought to ever be asked to in their entire lives. How many more of them were there? How long had they been down there getting tormented in that thing? There was no choice. He didn't want this. It was on him so quickly out of nowhere. But really, there was no choice. Max looked up at Gustav and nodded. Do it. Whatever it is, do it. And if it doesn't work, it wasn't your fault. I chose it. I take the responsibility. Gustav nodded slowly. Max waited, and for a long moment, nothing happened. Gustav sat there, meditating, staring at him. The suspense was killing Max. Hurry up already, Max gritted. Do it, you crazy bold medicine man. Get it over with. Then all at once, Gustav became a tiger. He leapt into the air, a low primal growl dripping through his teeth. Max waved his arms in front of him in panic. He tried to ward off the attack, but the tiger was simply too powerful. Max was thrown to the floor. In seconds, the tiger had clamped down upon Max's throat. What the hell was Gustav doing? Killing him? How was this supposed to help? Gustav was not being kind at all. On the contrary, this was an all-out attack, a brutal assault. The tiger did not bite through the skin. He was not actually tearing Max's larynx open, but he was suffocating him. Max struggled to draw breath. Max twisted and writhed, but Gustav the tiger held him pinned to the floor. Max could feel the hot breath of the beast, the low rumble of his growling thrumming through his own neck. Fear supreme seized him to the core. If he did not get air soon, he would go limp. His heart pounded faster, demanding oxygen, and his lungs burned with stale air, growing staler by the second. But Gustav did not let go. There was to be no mercy. Max suddenly understood this was a final gambit. He would either defend himself, or Gustav actually would kill him. Of course he would, Max thought numbly. This was the only way. The threat of death had to be real. There could be no doubt, no half-measures, no turning back. Nothing less than a true attack would suffice. And Max himself had agreed to this crisis. He'd asked for it. But he did not know how to defend himself. There was no secret knowledge buried in his mind. A sickening realization spread through him. No enlightenment came. No sudden answers burst forth. And that meant he would die here, now, like this. Not knowing anything, not accomplishing anything. No! He could not accept it. He would not accept it. But there was nothing he could do. Already, hallucinatory stars began to wink and swim blurrily in his vision. No! But then his body seemed to respond in a way his mind could not. Faintly, a shooting star seemed to streak across his body itself, or rather, inside of it. It was as though his body were transparent so far as the shooting star was concerned. And then there was another star, just like it, and another, crisscrossing his form. Then they started coming faster, starlight slicing up his torso, his arms, his legs. In moments, there was a hailstorm of meteors streaking across the insides of his body, building to a crescendo. He could feel them. He could see them. He had no idea how he was doing this. And then suddenly, a monstrous torrent of shooting stars coursed through his entire being, growing dangerously denser, until his entire body was shimmering and pouring starlight out all his pores. His form had become a dense starfield incarnate, and his starfire lit the whole room like a clean sun. 
Without warning, his neck burst with white flame and blasted Gustav the tiger back away from him. His windpipe opened, and delicious, glorious air filled his bursting lungs. He sagged in relief, gasping for air, and he could feel the starfire in his lungs burn hotter as though the oxygen were feeding the very stars themselves. A moment later, his form reverted back to flesh and bones, and he stayed panting where he lay. And then, suddenly, he remembered Gustav. Had he harmed him? Max sat up suddenly with worry. But the doctor was on his knees across the room, looking at Max with quiet awe. Smoke drifted lazily from his singed clothing, and he was rubbing his reddened lower lip as if he just burned it on hot coffee. Suddenly, Max himself smiled, and a laugh escaped him. He had done it! He had tapped into his primal power, the core of it. He couldn't say that he understood it, but he'd done it, and that was the important part. Gustav jumped to his feet. He was suddenly ecstatic, delirious with joy. He helped Max to his feet, and they both just stood there laughing wordlessly. So, Gustav said finally, there is something inside of you after all. Max nodded slowly. Yes, he said. He remembered it in a daze, still combing the experience over in his mind. It was the power of stars, of starlight, the power of sunlight, of moonlight, all of it rolled into one. But it wasn't me, Max said, trying to verbalize this feeling, now that the initial giddiness of the moment had passed. I mean, no, I was right. It wasn't me that did that. It was something else, something other. Gustav nodded. Yes, that's true. It was the one. For a brief instant, you forgot that you were the leaf. You acted as the tree. You were not just the wave. You were the entire sea itself. You connected with it. No, more than that, you were it. So that's why it, it didn't feel like me, though it was me and was not me at the same time. Gustav nodded again. Yes, but now you must learn to train your mind to make this connection by will alone, on command, when you wish it, not merely when your life is threatened. Is that possible? Max asked. Oh yes, Gustav replied. In fact, I must tell you that I am beyond impressed with what you just accomplished, and it confirms every suspicion I've had about you from the start. That is, from when you detected me probing your thoughts. That was quite unusual in itself, for me to be caught so squarely by an untrained mind. I knew then that you had wild talent, and you should also know that the first touch of the one is usually not so dramatic, shall we say. Most of us here, our first success was far more modest. A slight telekinesis, or something like that. But you... Gustav shook his head, chuckling with wonder. You are a marvel! Not a one of us in this house could do what you just did. To tap the raw power of the One in that way. It is astonishing. There's something rather extraordinary about you, Max Quick. Something beyond just modest talent. Whatever it is locked in your mind, it must be a great secret indeed. Max heard these last words with dread. What did it mean that he was capable of such power? Siren, for one, had suspected that he was capable of it. When Max had been threatened with a singular eye, Max had nearly succeeded in convincing Siren that his memory had returned, and then Siren had quite clearly feared for his life. Frankly, I expected to be on my knees in front of you, groveling by now. Then, when Siren had discovered the ruse, He's pretending! We'd all be dead already if he weren't. Siren, at least, had known. Somehow, he'd known. But it was power that he wanted. The ability to defend himself, 
and to thwart the plans of the Nuberians, to protect Vadim and Vanya, to protect Ian, Casey, and Sasha. And he needed power to stop the machine. Come, Gustav said, putting a hand on his shoulder and laughing. We must inform Europa that you are not dead. The next few days passed slowly. Romani took the news of Max's success with mixed emotion. She felt that it might embolden him further, cause him to perhaps attack the nest on his own. But Max promised solemnly that, despite his feelings on the matter, he would not cross the will of the house, and he meant it. But while Max was out visiting Vadim, Vanya, and Michelle, something else happened that was to change life in the House of the Hidden Hand forever. This is the end of Vadim and Vanya, Part 1. The chapter is concluded in Vadim and Vanya, Part 2.